New York, one of the most iconic cities in the world. The 90s were still very exciting here in New York. There was the meatpacking district, there were these clubs. Vintage clothing stores, all different kinds of brands, influenced from all around the world. A real vital, vibrant scene. So much variety in terms of the clothes and style. You had the uptown point of view, ladies who lunched. Downtown, like sort of rebellious kids. The fashion shows. If you went to the plaza to see the Jeffrey Bean show, you were lucky. Definitely the downtown art scene. Very underground fusion of art and fashion. Just the New York City life. New York's not homogenous. New York City cannot be contained. New York was the most exciting city in the world. The New Yorkness of it freed everybody up to imagine all kinds of different ways to look. It's what makes New York, New York. It can never be just one thing. So many people who've arrived from so many places, living so many different kinds of lives, all rubbing shoulders, mixing and blending together. And that's especially the story of New York fashion in the 1990s. In the 1970s and 80s, the fashion and subcultures of different parts of New York City had remained fairly distinct. There was the sleek, old-world glamour of Uptown, the bohemian artists of Soho, the punks of the Lower East Side, the street style of Brooklyn and the Bronx. But in the 90s, just as globalization was forcing the old-world fashion scenes of Paris and Milan to look beyond their borders, the distinct boundaries of fashion cultures in New York began to blur. That mix led to something new, a distinctly New York fashion style, one that could take someone from day to night, from uptown lunches to downtown clubs, from the opera to the rave. In other words, a style that allowed New Yorkers to live in all of the many worlds that exist in their city. And in a decade where global boundaries were rapidly disappearing, It was only natural that New York City, a city that has always been shaped by the cultural mix, would emerge as the fashion capital of the world. Welcome to In Vogue, the 1990s, a podcast about a pivotal time that ushered in a new era in fashion and in culture. Join us as we examine the defining moments of the decade that shape fashion as we know it today. We'll hear from fashion leaders, cultural icons, and Vogue's own editorial team. I'm Anna Winter. And I'm Hamish Bowles, Vogue's international editor-at-large and your host. All I had to do was cross over the George Washington Bridge. Like many people who have adopted New York City as their home, art and fashion photographer Ryan McGinley came from somewhere else. Nobody knew my name. I was just a young skater watching New York and sort of like getting my toes wet in art and in fashion. After Ryan graduated from high school in New Jersey in the mid-1990s, he moved into the city where he joined a thriving community of artists and skaters and other self-described outsiders living and working downtown. I guess the place that really had the biggest impact on me was the Alleged Gallery, which was a gallery that first started off on Ludlow Street, then it moved to Soho, and then it moved to the Meatpacking District before there was even a Meatpacking District, you know, before it had become kind of a thing. It was sort of known as like a skater gallery, and a lot of artists kind of came through it, like the filmmaker Harmony Corinne, 
the women's wear designer Susan Sensiolo, the graffiti artist Barry McGee, and I would have access to meeting all these like amazing young artists that were supporting themselves through their artwork. By 1990, Soho and its surrounding neighborhoods, the East and West Villages, had been home to alternative but increasingly famous art scenes for decades. In the early 90s, the artists and the skaters and the downtown outsiders turned to fashion too. I came to New York to do art. Musician Kim Gordon, a founding member of the band Sonic Youth. So my friend Daisy von Firth, who I ended up doing X-Girl with, we would go to Daryl Kay's and we really liked her, um, her clothes. There was Liquid Sky on Lafayette and then there was X-Girl. In 1993, Kim and her business partner, stylist Daisy von Firth, started the women's streetwear brand X-Girl and opened a boutique on Lafayette Street in Soho soon after. On Lafayette, their store joined other skater and rave-inspired shops Supreme and Liquid Sky. Kim Gordon had created X-Girl and like this big DJ created Liquid Sky and Liquid Sky had these giant raver jeans, kind of like when you wore them and almost looked like you were wearing a skirt because there was so much denim and we would all wear those and then we would wear these like really cute X-Girl ringers. Some of the clothes I really like are is this shirt, the uh, LSD shirt, Liquid Sky Design shirt. I'm wearing it now. It was like a time when, well, there was starting to be some downtown fashion in New York other than canal jeans. <laughs> and maybe Urban Outfitters was around, I don't know. APC, but there wasn't a lot. It hadn't always been that empty. Some of the city's earliest department stores, including Lord and & Taylor and Tiffany's, originally opened there. But as uptown Manhattan developed, retail moved north and fashion settled in the garment district uptown. More than a third of all the clothing worn in the United States is made in Manhattan's Midtown Garment Center. Downtown became a warehouse and manufacturing center, and that center slowly died off as New York manufacturing declined after the Second World War. I used to drive home with my father. I went to high school of performing arts on 46th Street, and he worked on 34th Street, and so we would drive through Soho, which was a burned out, literally a burned out slum. Designer Isaac Mizrahi. Like it was a terrifying drive through. And he would say to me, don't ever, don't ever come near this place. It's hell, you know, because he grew up as a first generation American who worked in actual sweatshops that were actually those buildings. A lot of these factories had moved out and the owners of these buildings had all this empty space. At the same time, artists sort of saw the spaces as gold mines. Artist and activist Yuki Ota grew up in Soho in the 70s and is the founder of the Soho Memory Project. Because they were cast iron buildings, the lofts themselves had huge windows, let in a lot of natural light. And these are the two conditions that artists really coveted. People from all over the country and even all over the world came to Soho to be part of this community where art was at the forefront. The artistic community grew, and artists like Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat drew not just galleries, but also attention downtown. And more stores began to open in the 70s and 80s, 
spurring an artist-driven gentrification. The first clothing store I noticed open was Agnes B on Prince Street. And I was like, oh, okay. So fashion store. And I was like, oh, so people want to shop here. And then Come de Garçon was the second one I noticed. And that, it, you know, there might have been others, but this is like on, you know, Prince and Wooster and where I walked every day. And Come de Garçon, you know, is sort of way out there. And I thought, wow, okay, something's happening here. It was a place for more avant-garde artistic designers, including Rei Kawakubo's Comme des Garçons, Yoji Yamamoto, Isimiaki, Jean-Paul Gaultier, and Azadine Alaya, whose store was designed by the artist Julian Schnabel. People who played with form and fabric and silhouette in unexpected ways. And the area carried a certain cachet. So in the late 80s, early 90s, young fashion designers started to look to Soho as a place to open their independent boutiques. Isaac Mizrahi again. It was also the coolest place in the world. It had no stores. It was like maybe two restaurants. And there was one shop called If, this wonderful shop called If, I-F, Divine. And those people had all of like Gautier. And at that time, Gautier was like, oh my God, Gautier, you know. Part of the appeal was the affordable rent. By the time I had the wherewithal to open my company in 1987, the only place I could afford was Soho. So I, I rented the space in Soho. That was my only alternative, right? I couldn't open at 575 7th Avenue. I didn't have the money. But it was also the downtown attitude that attracted these designers. When I started selling a lot of stores, people didn't know where to put me. Like in designer departments, I couldn't really hang next to Bill Blass and Calvin Klein. Designer Anna Sui. They, they just, the, the department stores usually ended up putting me in a hallway or next to the escalator and we'd do a little pop-up shop almost and I'd bring in my Tiffany lamps and wicker furniture and kind of decorate it for them. Anna drew on music as a source of inspiration and paired baby doll dresses with Doc Martens or deliberately treated fabric to look vintage an aesthetic that contrasted with the preppy, more couture sportswear offered on 7th Avenue. So she sought out her own space, opening a boutique in Soho in 1992. I went down to Soho, walked around on the blocks, found that space on Green Street. I said, you know, I want to open a store. And they're like, well, you know, what we're looking for is a long-term tenant. And I said, well, as long as I can do business, I'll be there. And so I ended up being there for more than 20 years. Designers like Anna Sui, not to mention streetwear and rave and skater-inspired lines like Liquid Sky and Kim Gordon's Ex-Girl, rejected the commercial instincts that had come to rule the glossy uptown houses. And because they were younger and coming up in a different generation, they had something to react to and model or reject that model. Vogue archive editor, Laird Borelli Person. I want that kind of a su success. I want to be the next Calvin or... I want to do things my way and I don't want to have a big office on 7th Avenue that I have to take an elevator up to and have 400 employees. I reject that kind of working and I prefer a more artisanal approach or a smaller approach, which doesn't mean that people didn't want success or international success or local success, but they wanted to work and they approached their work in a different way and in a way that rejected certain systems that were already in place. Soho and 7th Avenue 
may have felt like entirely different worlds, but in reality they were mere miles apart. And in the 90s, they were about to get even closer. More after the break. Hey, Run Through listeners. Are you curious about what goes on behind the scenes at Vogue and in the world of fashion? Join Vogue Club, a one-of-a-kind fashion community where you can unlock exclusive access to Vogue editors, industry players, and fellow members, as well as receive expert style advice, tickets to VIP events, handpicked gifts, and so much more. Visit VogueClub.com today and get 20% off using promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. That's VogueClub.com, promo code THERUNTHROUGH20. I remember everybody telling me not to open in Soho, like, don't do that. The buyers will never come there. They're lazy and they don't want to come to Soho and don't do that to yourself. Designer Isaac Mizrahi had worked at Uptown labels, Perry Ellis, Jeffrey Banks and Calvin Klein. So launching his label out of downtown New York felt like a bit of a risk for someone with his elegant modern aesthetic. And I remember thinking, well, I don't care because I don't want to be part of that 7th Avenue thing. Isaac Mizrahi's instinct turned out to be a good one. I grew there. I ended up with my own building in Soho. It was fabulous, you know. And it was designed by Ross Anderson, and it was fabulous, and people came and went, and it was a real salon. It was everybody from Julia Roberts and Manolo Blahnik and Shalom Arlo and Candace Bushnell in the same room, you know, and during a fitting. No, I mean it. It was something beyond. In fact... This sort of cultural mixing between uptown New Yorkers and the various downtown subcultures had been happening, well, for decades. I was pretty much brought up uptown. Designer Vera Wang attended a prestigious girls' school on the Upper East Side and was presented as a debutante at the Waldorf Astoria. But she felt a real affinity for downtown culture. Her aesthetic even challenged some of the sensibilities at Vogue, where she worked as an editor in the 70s and 80s. I was kind of a black sheep. I mean, even at Vogue, I was a black sheep. I used to wear Capizio jazz slippers in white. And I would wear them with these little leather pants, black leather pants that were made for me by a guy who dressed a lot of rock stars. He hand sewed them. And he was on Lexington Avenue on the third floor, and he would make me these skin-tight pants in unlined leather, so they melted to your body. And I wore torn T-shirts that I'd cut up, and I would wear those to Vogue. For me, I've always loved the mix of tomboy and yet sensual. And I've always loved the mixture of the ease of downtown and the cool and the artistic world that evolved in the art, painting, sculpture, all of that. And yet, I very much appreciate the quality and the make of clothing that originated in Europe. I just feel that it's that mix. I think it gives attention in the way you style yourself that can stay relevant. And Vera Wang was far from the only uptown designer who found inspiration and a home in the downtown scene. People downtown, I mean, the people who got to know me in the clubs always thought of me as like this downtown kid because of, I guess, my energy, my curiosity, my artistic output, and the way I just carried myself. Everybody just assumed I was like this downtown kid. But I was actually coming from the Upper West Side. When Mark Jacobs started going out in New York in the late 1970s, the place to go for a young designer was Studio 54, a legendary midtown haunt 
It was one of the nightclubs where you could find a mix of people from home and abroad mingling all night. I think at 16, I went to Studio 54 for the first time. It's three in the morning in Manhattan, and still at Studio 54, people crowd the doors, hoping to get in. It was where I saw all the, all the fashion and all the glamour and all the beauty and all the sort of, I don't know, art and music and everything happening was out in those clubs. The clubs were an opportunity to interact with everyone in the city, and designers especially observed that nightlife and translated it into their work. But nightlife, I guess the important part of this is that nightlife was like, once I started going out, nightlife was just as, it was as much a part of my life as day life. Studio 54 served as an enduring inspiration for other more uptown designers like Diane von Furstenberg, Karl Lagerfeld, Tom Ford and Calvin Klein. It was one night at Studio 54 when someone came up to me. I was going to stay up all night and then fly to um, uh, to a fabric show in, in Germany. And sure enough, this man comes up to me at three o'clock in the morning and asks if I would be interested in doing a denim collection. And I called my business partner and I said, you know, this is really interesting. I'd love to do this. And it, it came about just for those reasons. Even after Studio 54 closed in 1980, there were others, Mud Club, Area, Danceteria, that defined downtown New York nightlife. These clubs, especially the gay bars, were safe spaces for outsiders, but they also gave New Yorkers an opportunity to leave the neighbourhoods where they lived, to be exposed, interact and mix with one another. You know, it's kind of like a great dinner party. Designer Michael Kors. If it's all one crowd, what a bore. And, you know, I think that started in the 70s when I think about, you know, really the ultimate mix was Studio 54. The 80s, suddenly there was a division. Uptown and downtown really never met. And then in the 90s, the dinner party got kooky, so to speak, again. And, and when I think about it, it's, I think, mid-90s or so, the sort of epicenter of this mix was going to dinner at Mr. Chow's because you suddenly had uptown New York, you had the Lower East Side art crowd, and then you had the hip hop crowd and everyone converged and it became just the most unbelievable sort of crossbreeding going on that the uptown girl was checking out the downtown crowd the hip-hop crowd was looking at the Upper East Side, and the Upper East Side was looking at hip-hop. And of course, it, it made for a, you know, a great fun night. But I think the 90s had really all of that, that mix. It truly was a mix. No matter what fashion scene you felt most included in, you'd run into people who were part of other very different scenes. And it wasn't just uptown people going downtown to be a part of that excitement, but aspiring downtown fashionistas heading up to 57th and 5th in the hope of being immortalised by photographer Bill Cunningham for his widely read New York Times column. They both needed each other. Vogue archive editor Led Borelli Person. We talk about it today as the halo effect. Buyers came to New York to see Calvin Don Ralph. But while they were there, they wanted to see that it was new, so they would see the young designers. They might not come just for the young designers. So Uptown needed Downtown, but Downtown needed something 
you know, it could ride on the coattails in some degree, but it also needed something to react against. What was, what was big business, what was establishment fashion is something that helped them forge an identity as something other than that, deliberately other than that. The mix in New York was actually creating something more cohesive. City dwellers needed clothes that could take them all over New York, clothes that could keep up with not just the pace, but also the personalities of the people wearing them, especially when those people felt just as at home in the edginess of downtown and the consumer-conscious savvy of uptown. Designer Francisco Costa. You know, it became a time where all of a sudden reduction is starting to become more apparent. And it wasn't just reduction. You know, I think people have become a little more important taking the, the front line of what was happening. You know, there was a preoccupation about people's lives and, and expressions throughout that whole time. I think that reduction had to come because now people and, uh, and the personalities were more important than fashion itself. And this unified desire for something chic yet wearable was what distinguished American fashion from all of the other fashion capitals. I think the magic of American fashion really is that freedom because it's always the body and clothes habitating together. You're not being constricted by fashion. You're not being constricted by the garment that's wearing you. You're wearing the garment. People felt free. They, had, they felt the permission to be who they were as creators. Vera Wang applied this mix of sensibilities to bridal, which had remained a very traditional industry, eluding broader fashion trends until Vera opened her bridal boutique in 1990. I've worked into um, particular parts of fashion industries that are more conservative. I mean, bridal, when I started in bridal, was an extremely, almost, I would say, not pomp and circumstance, but tradition overrode everything. The white dress that dated from Queen Victoria. I mean, women had an idea of bridal. They had a preconception of it for decades. But I wasn't in it for that reason. I was in it to bring fashion. I mean, I certainly started to bring black into the vocabulary. The dress I did for Vogue was a white satin duchess dress with black velvet trim. So that could have been thought of as sacrilege for a wedding gown. You know, I mean, it could have been thought of as bad luck or perceived as inappropriate or... But to me, it just felt graphic, felt clean. The merging of all the different strands of New York fashion was embodied in 1993 with the creation of 7th on 6th later to become known as New York Fashion Week. Totally merged in the tents. Fern Malice, appointed executive director of the Council of Fashion Designers of America in 1991, orchestrated the new event that brought shows from almost all of New York's fashion players out of their own salons and showrooms and downtown lofts and together in Bryant Park. So, you know, we had Carolina and, and Oscar. At the beginning, we did have Calvin and Donna and Donna did collection NBKNY at some points and you know Ralph did some extraordinary shows in the tents you know and then it was Tommy and you know the downtown uptown maybe the the way it played out was you know the uptown had the show slots at 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock and the downtown crowd had the seven and eight o'clock time slots and, and it was remarkable what people did to personalize e each of those venues they, they were transformed, I mean, every hour on the hour. 
I think suddenly everyone was interested in New York Fashion Week and we had international press. Designer Anna Sui. There was so much coverage in Europe and Japan. People were just really interested in New York designers because there was suddenly this new energy coming out of New York. And by the middle of the 90s, all eyes were on New York City, attracting press, buyers and other major designers. And one of those designers was the Austrian-born Helmut Lang, who moved his highly successful brand to New York, coming to define the city's enduring modern style. Fern Malice again. I mean, people followed him like he was a god. You know, whatever Helmut did was the direction where fashion was going, and that was what everybody loved. When Helmut moved to New York, you know, he was part of the scene. And he wasn't just part of it, he changed it. It was Helmut, working with New York designers, including Calvin Klein, who decided to show before Paris, moving New York Fashion Week to show first, ahead of Europe. I mean, he was kind of this incredible embodiment of the city's fastness, its speed, its need for things to be streamlined, dynamic, quick, and cool. He, he just gave this city, the city of New York, an incredible uniform to wear. Vogue Fashion News Director Mark Holgate. And you know, when he was advertising in New York, he decided to do it on top of a taxi. It was the most utilitarian, the most democratic idea of transportation. He advertised atop a yellow New York cab because you saw it everywhere. And it lived on the streets of, this, of New York, obviously, and it, it spoke to real life. And like the iconic yellow cabs, which zoomed back and forth between every part of the city, Helmut captured the cultural exchange happening between all of the different parts of New York's fashion scene. Led Borelli Person again. He was coming from a European tradition and he was very associated with fine arts. His store was located downtown, but if his clothes were art, they could work in an uptown gallery or, you know, a more experimental downtown gallery. And even though Helmut's business aligned him with uptown, he also appealed to downtown New York. I saved up some money to buy some Helmut Lang jeans. Photographer Ryan McGinley again. They kind of had these jeans that sort of had like padded knees and they came in like silver and black. And I, I bought a silver pair for myself, which was like kind of a big deal. He managed to combine a classic look that somebody chic and like an editor could wear with somebody who is on the street that was very hip could wear. It also, I think, crystallized the whole idea of modern kind of urban glamour for me. I went to his shows, which were in his Green Street store. They were tiny. Mark Holgate. And it was very different from shows I'd seen in Paris of his because the models would walk through the store. They would literally brush right past you. You know, and New York, as we know, is a, it's a city where everyone's fighting for space, personal space all the time. I think this one got the right mixture um, about the elegant side I like very much, about um, the ability of being sophisticated and at the same time uh, to be matchable with the street style and sporty influences. I think it was maybe the second show I went to see, the one in 99. About halfway through the show, Claudia Schiffer appeared in this ivory or off-white, I forget which, tuxedo with a white shirt, and her blonde hair was just kind of scraped back. It looked like she wasn't wearing much makeup. The 90s was also the era of making makeup look like it wasn't there. But one 
one flash of color with a bright red lip. And I just do remember thinking that is probably the most glamorous and kind of chic way anyone could look right now. In a way, it kind of recalled the ability to be both, both very real and also be transportive that in a way that I think good fashion can be. Helmet's twisted. Um, we've got lots of layers. Everything's mismatched. Um, but it all comes together in a really strong effect. Helmet is the American dream. It's like that bringing together of, of differences into something new. Perhaps that is what was so appealing about Helmut's designs. Like combining latex and lace in one dress, every piece was the glorious outcome of his marriage of careful tailoring and innovative fabric use. But in many ways, this is a familiar story in fashion. Led Borelli person. I mean, it's the same in Paris, right bank, left bank. It's usually these two establishment, anti-establishment, and where they meet is where the real excitement is. That's what the story is really about, the meeting point. And the 90s was New York's meeting point of uptown and downtown. Downtown was, I believe, young people and artists making a statement and not just about art and not just about music, but about how they dressed as well. And like everything else, there was a sense of rebellion. Designer Vera Wang. There was a division, a schism uh, for the first part of the 90s. But as the 90s evolved, and like everything else, every designer found their voice and became more and more sophisticated. Then whatever they were proposing started to move centrist. Not centrist, but maybe less, I don't want to use the word rebellious, but maybe that it was something that uptown clients could also relate to, as well as downtown clients. While every designer may have an uptown and downtown version of themselves, it's less about the two versions and more about the union of them. The key is in the mix of these sensibilities, which generated some of the most provocative, romantic, pragmatic, pure fashion we'd ever seen. The, in the 90s, the melting pot idea was, was very... People talked about it a lot about New York City as being a mosaic and opposites or different things coming together to create something new. That's the beauty of America and particularly of New York where unexpected unions are made and something new is made out of two different things. As the globe careened towards the millennium and more ways to travel and communicate with each other emerged, the closing distance between us all became not just a sort of naive fairy tale, especially in New York, where these creative convergences also included displacement and exclusion. But this city is a testament to the extraordinary things that happen when people come together. And in this case, it was this essential meeting of uptown and downtown, of establishment and anti-establishment in the 90s that transformed New York into what it is today, a leading global fashion capital that dresses modern, constantly evolving people for a modern, constantly evolving world. In Vogue, the 1990s, is presented by Anna Winter and produced by Jasmine Aguilera, Julia Doyle, Kinsey Clark, 
Tarka Zen, and Megan Lubin. Edited by Maura Waltz. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Mixed by Rainhouse. In Vogue's editorial team is Laird Borelli Person, Mark Holgate, Nicole Phelps, and myself. Special thanks to creative editorial director Mark Riducci, digital director Annalisa Yabsley, and vice president of audio Julie Shen. Please do subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information, incredible imagery, and episode references in the show notes or at vogue.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Hamish Bowles. Until next week, in Vogue.